everybody, and welcome to the Total Soccer Show. I am Taylor Rockwell, and today I'm joined by a man who thinks Sergio Mane is overrated, or at the very least a joke. It's Sam Ty of the BR Football Ranks podcast. Hello, Sam. Oh, dude, you don't have to do me like that. I've had 24 <laughs> hours of hell. <laughs> it's crazy. It's crazy. I mean, first of all, Sergio Mane is amazing. Uh-huh. Uh, but maybe the English terminology of, oh, Mane's a joke, isn't he? That doesn't quite translate to, uh, to every culture, apparently, because I've had a few people tell me that what that, that means I don't rate him, which I really do. But, uh, yeah, apart from that, apart from that, everything's well over here in England. How is it over in the US? I hear you've had a presidential debate, made a couple of waves. I mean, we had, we had a screamathon where everybody yelled at each other for a while and nonsense was said. Yeah, it was not my favorite thing. Uh, my blood pressure went up. I definitely was going to try not to drink and drank about five minutes in. It was not my favorite evening, uh, but, you know, football can help with that. Soccer can help alleviate the tension a little bit. How's, how are things over there, Sam? Everything good over there? We don't have any of the screamathons happening. No? Uh, we just have uh, a, probably a similarly incompetent uh, leadership group yeah. uh, and, go- and government, and we have absolutely no idea where we stand with anything. We are, there are rumors of a second lockdown incoming, which is very disheartening. Um, the pubs are now closing at 10 p.m., uh, as part of like a soft lockdown, and what's that? What that's created is a, a new rush hour at 10 p.m. as everyone leaves the pub. Oh, wow. So that was so that was smart. Um, honestly, the tube stations in in central London at 10 p.m. are as busy as they are at 5:30 on a normal non-pandemic working day. They are that bad because everybody has to leave at the same time. It is ah, in a bad way a joke. So uh, <laughs> it's been it's been it's been it's been strange. It's been strange, but I, at least I'm healthy. Not in the Sergio Mane way of a joke, in the bad way of a joke. Um, you yeah. said you may have some incompetent leadership over there. Uh, let's stick with that for a moment to talk about Manchester United, shall we? Oh, nice segue. Thank you. Uh, I didn't mean to lead with them. In fact, I think my initial initial plan was to lead with like uh, Aston Villa to get you to get you going, but instead we'll talk about uh, Manchester United for a moment because the reports today were Alex Tellez is. On their radar, but uh, their offer was not strong enough to even get a response. Same goes for Jaden Sancho. Um, do you have insight or any idea as to why Manchester United seem to struggle in the transfer market? Or do you think they struggle? Because it is my opinion that they do. They don't tend to get their deals done when they probably should. They tend to overpay, in my opinion. I'm wondering if you have thoughts on why that tends to be the case. I mean, they definitely struggle, dude. Okay. There's no, um, there's absolutely no second guessing that notion. They definitely struggle. I mean, the fact that we've got to this point and the only addition that's been made is Donny van der Beek, and he doesn't even upgrade your starting eleven or the one that we saw, you know, rolling in June. That is a massive concern. Whereas you've got loads of other clubs like Chelsea and even even down to, to Aston Villa and even Fulham at the very bottom of the table have brought four or five new faces in. You know, United are stuck on one, stuck on the same few targets. Um, Alex Tellez. Christ, I mean, he's on the radar, but I just don't know how seriously they're taking that right now because they're just pouring all their efforts into the Jaden Sancho thing. We've seen new F, new new reports of a new bid there that was once again under the valuation. Why do they waste their time? I'd imagine it's the same thing with Alex Telles. Uh, I see reports of Usman Dembele as well. I'd imagine they've probably offered under the asking price. Yep. So I think I think that's probably the key point. Why do they struggle? It's because they habitually offer less than they're quoted, and I appreciate that. There is a dynamic when it comes to trying to trying to complete transfers and, and you have to negotiate, but you can't go around offering like literally half the price. You know, we see like this. This is something that we've 
we've mocked Daniel Levy for for a long, long time. You know, derisory, like off-putting offers, offers that actually piss the other team off so much that they don't want to do business with you anymore. There was a stupid um, story that I actually do believe a couple of years ago when Tottenham tried to buy Jack Grealish. He was quoted 25 million and his first offer was 1 million and Josh Onomar on loan. Now, how exactly how accurate that is, I don't know. But let's be honest, that's believable with Daniel Levy. And it's the art of pissing everybody off. You know, it's, 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 it's something that I think Manchester United have done one too many times over the last couple of years. And Dortmund are just like, what the hell is happening here? They're so perplexed by, by, by the handling of this situation. And um, I think it probably starts there, mate. It's not, it's not pretty to watch at all. And let's, let's not be under any illusions. The cloud that this creates over the summer business has clearly seeped into the start of the season hasn't it because you, you hit the palace game and you're just wildly underprepared you play one one preseason friendly i think the week yeah. before which is against villa which they lost which doesn't matter but like hell of a marker yeah no one no one looks fit um you haven't got any new faces through the door there's not that that optimism is gone that 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 fluency is gone that momentum has disappeared because the second game brighton it was either 11 or maybe 10 of the starters that you would expect from the June and July role, right? It was basically the team. And it didn't look anywhere near what it used to. It's because that momentum and that bounce has just disappeared because of the poor summer. So it's actually really starting to affect them on the field as well. Yeah, because like, I, uh, I enjoyed you all talking about uh, Aberchi Eze and how he's essentially kind of like brought more out of Wilfred Zaha that Zaha hasn't enjoyed some of like the high profile coverage of Eze and has maybe upped his game a little bit. And it seems like that is the important thing when you're refreshing your squad is to bring in players who make the team better, obviously, but raise that level of competition. Seems like Bruno did that in January. It does not seem like they've had anybody do that this summer, even if Donny van de Beek has, has tried. The question then becomes... On field, are you seeing anything from Ole Gunnar Solskjaer? Are you seeing moments that do make you think like, okay, he has an idea of how to get this team playing and just doesn't have the resources, doesn't have the reinforcements? Because I will be honest, the wakey-wakey anecdote that I heard on your podcast physically <laughs> hurt me, and I don't know what to make of it. Oh, I laughed so much at that. That was really, that was really it funny. It really did. Um, like, I need you to understand how aggressively I was rubbing my temples when I heard that story. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I know. I mean, that I mean, th- there's definitely a noted criticism of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and that's his in-game management and his substitutions. Right. I'm sure that you have you as a, as a fan have noticed this, but lots of people have pointed out that how he uses his substitutions don't seem particularly optimal. He doesn't really seem to be able to change games or swing games in the way others do. And um, I think I now know why, because his tactic to do so is to shout wakey wakey at his players. Um, yeah. Concerned, concerned. And <laughs> I think Solskjaer fundamentally is a good coach. I, I th- at least with the attacking players, like he gets a lot, he takes a lot of bullets, Solskjaer, and I'm not his biggest fan. But you, you look at Martial's turnaround and, you know, injury excused what he managed to do with Rashford. And then the way that Mason Greenwood has, has just, well, he's leaped through the hoops, hasn't he? he? Hasn't stepped through them. It's been remarkable. Those forward players are obviously really clearly benefiting from Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's coaching. But coaching on the training on the training field with regard to like solo one v one stuff is a very different thing to setting up a team, understanding the dynamic of a team, and being able to affect 
and change games when you're faced with different propositions. And you know Solskjaer just stumbled across an 11 last season in June and went, well, this works, and just carried on playing it until it stopped working. And now, arguably, he doesn't actually know what to do next. And that's where I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. And of course, new players give him the opportunity to actually switch that up. But he hasn't really been given many. He's been given one who doesn't. He's a really good player. I don't. I, I rate. I rate Donny, but he's he doesn't fit in the team, does he? Mm -hmm. Like it, it doesn't improve the eleven because you can't put him in because you can't put Donny and Pogba and Bruno in. It doesn't work. So that's that's where that's where he is right now, and that's the concern. You have an almost encyclopedic knowledge of players around the world. I feel like you'll downplay that, but uh, you do. I'm just going to say it up front. Are there players that you think they could be looking at that you would like to see them look at if they are looking for a right winger, another center back, or a left back? Like, and it seems as though they don't necessarily want to meet the 100 million euro valuation for players. They don't want to overspend for Alex Tellez in the final year of his deal. Are there players you think they could get for a more reasonable amount that could have an immediate impact? You know, United get overcharged for everything and everyone, don't they? I mean, Alex Tellers, final, like, like, the, I think what United, where, where they are with Tellers right now, I'm, I'm going to assume because I don't know, but this is probably the stance they're taking is that because he's in the final year of his deal, he should come cheap. Yep. That's not really how it works anymore. I would say that while that used to be the case, what is more likely now is that when a player enters his, the final year of his deal, it means he's actually purchasable as opposed to off the cards completely and totally before. So take Eden Hazard. Eden Hazard entered the final year of his deal and he went for 100 million, right? That's not a cheap deal, not by any stretch of the imagination. He's one of the 10 most expensive players of all time and he had one year left on his deal. What one year left now means is you can actually get him. You're still going to have to pay. And Tellis is good. His defensive quality is questionable, but I think what we saw from Luke Shaw post-lockdown in June and July in terms of stretching play, giving balance, and being able to hit the byline uh, and overlap his winger, I thought was really, really important. And Brandon Williams doesn't do that because he's right-footed. Um, so I think that Tellers would be a real improvement in that area. Has a hell of an engine on him, hell of a cross, hell of a set piece, runs up and down all day and would give you that balance. So defensively, there'll be question marks there. But I think the most important thing when it comes to a fullback at an attacking team at a top six team like United is actually it's more important to be offensively good than defensively good, in my opinion. And that comes from a place of, you know, I don't think Juan Bissaka is, is actually a good fit for a team that, that touches the ball in advanced areas as much as United do. You know, I'm not a, a massive fan of that dynamic. So mm -hmm. tell us would be absolutely fine. The left centre back stuff, which I think it should be a left centre back. Uh, I wouldn't mind seeing Maguire go to the right, to be honest with you. Um, this is a tough market. And it's a tough market because Gabriel already went to Arsenal. And Gabriel is solid. He's solid. And you should have gone in for him or should have gone harder. Um, and let's be honest, if you've got the choice, you are probably going to join Man United at this point with the Champions League football on the card. So that should have been done. And the other, the other you know, where do you go from there? I mean, the one I've got on my list is Romagnoli from Milan, who is good, not amazing, probably purchasable because Milan playing the Europa League. But it's a, it's a really tough market. And right wing is even harder because he spent so long chasing Sancho. that it's such an opportunity cost there. You know, you lose, you lose the chance to go and maybe fight Man City for Ferran Torres and offer him a, a first team role uh, who would have been perfect. And, you know, stylistically, Rashford is closest to someone like Marcus Edwards. But you're not going to sign Marcus Edwards to fill that role because that's too much pressure. So where do you go from there? Kingsley Coman, injury prone. 
Usman Dembele, very injury prone. It's tough, man. It's tough. You've, they've just they've just wasted so much time that now whatever they do, they're gonna have to overpay if it's not for Sancho. So reasons for optimism is what I'm hearing from Manchester United fans. <laughs> Um, maybe maybe more reason for optimism, say, for Aston Villa. Uh, they are currently fourth, as we all expected. Started the season with two wins in the Premier League, two wins in the League Cup, 10 goals for, one against. What do you think has been the key or the keys to that fast start? Good fixtures for a start. I that, mean, doesn't hurt. that does not hurt. That is true. I mean, they've been a little bit lucky there. They were originally scheduled to play... Uh, Manchester City away on the opening Premier League weekend, but because of their involvement late in the Champions League, that had to be postponed. So that that was skipped. You got the League Cup warm up against Burton. Uh, you go straight in against Sheffield United, who were reduced to ten men in the first half, uh, and then you got Fulham next, who are an absolute car crash. So, you know that's that's been helpful, obviously. But I would argue they're yet to face like a top ten team, so we we haven't got the true barometer of them. But certain things that we saw. At the very end of last season, post-lockdown, they tightened up massively. They became much more streetwise and smart with regard to how they needed to win games and the defensive ethic they needed as well. Um, you saw some players like Douglas Louise come to the fore and really catch fire. My God, that guy is good. That guy is really, really good. And uh, a lot of the form and that steeliness and that smarts has carried over into the new season. And they haven't conceded the goal in the Premier League Maybe a bit fortunate thanks to VAR against Fulham, but you know they look stout, they look solid. And um, in the summer, what they've done is they've added speed, specifically speed and difference makers in attack, to make them more potent up front as well. So now they can they can balance that that very solid core they've got now with with Louise coming through. Konza looks fantastic. Mings is just getting better and better. New right back, loads of energy from Matty Cash. And you've got speed and speed and and strength and uh, and potency up front with Bertrand Traore and Ollie Watkins and and maybe one more. And then you know today is the day we record. Ross Barkley turns up on loan, mm-hmm. and that's important for two reasons. One, it improves the eleven. Uh, Connor Hurahan doesn't actually deserve to be dropped right now, but he'll be in the crosshairs. And two, Villa for all their for all their you know their positives are still incredibly reliant on Jack Grealish, and. Not only can Barkley play with Grealish and share the burden, but if Grealish were to go down, you know, yesterday, Villa fans would be scratching their heads and going, oh my God, how are we going to create chances with, without Grealish? Well, now you've got your Grealish too. You've got your second guy who can step up and go, all right, Grealish is not here, but I'm here. I'm Ross Barkley. And in a context of Villa, like Barkley is a sensational player. Yeah. Just because you're not quite good enough to beat, you know, Kai Havertz and Mason Mount to a spot in the Chelsea team doesn't mean that he walks into like... 13 Premier League starting 11s with ease. So that is a, a brilliant piece of business, a really, really good piece of business. And that's why there's so much optimism there at the moment. Are you surprised that Jack Grealish is still there? Because he's one who frequently gets sort of like mentioned in rumors, but I never, I, at least to my knowledge, never hear like, oh, he is definitely being linked. There are definitely offers coming in. Those offers are being rejected. It feels like we're moving forward. It seems like he is sort of always there as the, well, if Manchester United can't get Jaden Sancho, maybe they'll go after Jack Grealish. If this team can't get that guy, maybe they want Jack Grealish. But it doesn't seem like he is ever really, really on the way out. Uh, and that does sort of surprise me. So I'm wondering if you are surprised by that as well, or if you have ideas as to why that might be the case. Yeah, I think obviously if Villa had gone down, he was off 100% gone. Um, and no Villa fan would have begrudged him that because he can't he can't be playing at championship level again. It's a complete waste of time. The guy's way too good. Um, but once Villa had secured survival, I was, I was pretty sure that he was going to stay because Villa are low-key, extremely rich, 
Um, they've got two billionaire owners who have spent a lot of money and have a lot, a lot of wealth. And people don't realize this. Villa are under no pressure to do anything they don't want to do because they have so much money. And once they secured survival and were able to take you know, step two in the project, I figured that the asking price of Grealish would be so astronomically high. And he still had, I think, three or four years left on his deal. No one was ever going to stump up the cash. And when the price came through, 80 million for Grealish, you know everyone's going to go, uh, not this year. And then he signs that five-year deal. I mean, presumably it has a release clause in it, but it will be 80 million or more. He's on 140 grand a week now, apparently, which, you know, to think Aston Villa are paying a player 140 grand a week is remarkable. It is a very different scenario to the one we've been facing over the last five or six years or so where Villa are yeah, either in the championship or like, you know, paying 200 grand for Ashley Westwood and hoping that he can do a job. You know, this is a very different scenario. And this is all playing into this quick start and this this acceleration of Villa's prospects because they're ambitious and they're showing it. And John Terry for manager of the year next season? <laughs> well, I mean, how how do you quantify an assistant manager's contribution? It's impossible, isn't it? It really I mean, is, but I feel like you'll find who a Who knows what he's doing? I mean, presumably he's doing some good stuff. Um I mean, for the first 28 games of last season, Villa couldn't defend a set piece for their lives. And it, I was constantly scratching my head as to why John Terry wasn't either suiting up himself and getting in there or at least <laughs> teaching players how to how to jostle and, and, and clear because he was the master of it. Uh, but since lockdown, since March, they've been really, really strong on set pieces, both attacking and defensive as well. So maybe finally that message is getting across or maybe it's nothing to do with him. We just don't know. We can't say. Much more still to come from Mr. Sam Ty. We're going to talk a lot of Premier League. We're going to talk a lot of how Sam tracks players. That's near the end of the show. But first, I'm going to talk about Magic Spoon. Magic Spoon allows you to eat cereal for breakfast without feeling wildly guilty, especially because you're eating cereal that looks like you should feel guilty because it's got the bright colors. It looks like it should be sort of unhealthy but worth it because why not start your day with something unhealthy but worth it? But it's actually quite healthy because zero Zero sugar, 11 grams of protein, only three net carbs each per serving. Uh, it's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, low-carb, GMO-free. The list goes on, I'm assuming. The point is, it's good for you. Which is very nice because if you're like me, you enjoy the breakfast. You don't always enjoy the work that goes into breakfast. So you're either making eggs and bacon and toast and whatnot, or you're making oatmeal, or you're just like eating a bar of some type. But that's not really fulfilling. That's not really that exciting. Magic Spoon allows you to eat a breakfast. You feel like you're making something, but it's very simple. It's only the two things, the bowl, the spoon, the cereal, the milk. So I guess four things. Uh, but then healthy option uh, and a guarantee that you will enjoy it. We'll talk about that in a second. Because first, I would tell you that you can go to magicspoon.com slash TSA to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code TSS at checkout to get free shipping. Magic Spoon is so confident, as I said, in their product. It's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they will refund your money, no questions asked. That's magicspoon.com slash TSS and use code TSS for free shipping. We thank Magic Spoon for sponsoring this episode. Now we get back to me asking Sam questions. Villa have done uh, good business, I think it's fair to say. Manchester United have done the opposite of that. Which other clubs in the Premier League have you uh, enjoyed, do you think, have done smart things this window? I mean, we could talk about Everton if you want. I feel like we should. I'm good with that. Everton. Everton. Oh, mate. They're they're my favorite team to watch in the Premier League right now. um, They are appointment viewing. I'm loving loving this team. Uh, Three signings. James, Allen, and Decore. 
have completely transformed, completely transformed this team's outlook. And no, I'm not getting carried away. I don't think they're going to finish in the top four. But what we've seen so far from them has been really, really promising. And, and they're a fantastic watch. These these little dynamics they have, you know, uh, spreading the ball out to James on the right side. And he he cuts it across back, switches back to, to Dina, who's running up and down and up and down to try and get in the get get towards the box and try and provide someone like Calvert-Lewin some service. You've got Rashadison running around like a nutter the entire time. I love Alan. He covers so much ground. He does the dirty work. He's such a good player. And the fullbacks look reinvigorated, which means that Everton really, I think, are only weak in one area, and that's uh, that's centre-back. Um, and I know that they're still in the market for something, you know, in the in the final days. So we've seen a few players linked. But Yeri Mina is the only player in this team that I look at and go, you don't quite belong. Everybody else looks, everybody else looks good, man. This is a good side. So you said you don't expect them to stay in the top four or necessarily fight for those top four spots. What what keeps them from doing that or what could they add that would maybe make you feel a little bit more confident about their prospects? Well, I think some of it is to do with the fact that what we're seeing from Dominic Calvert-Lewin right now is, is maybe not that much of a surprise because we know he's a good player, but we don't have any actual evidence that he can sort of do this for a long, like for 38 games. So like it's, it's a weird, like kind of human, like bias or like, a, like, a, like, a, I don't know. It's like a psychology in your brain, isn't it? Where you're like, well, I haven't, if I haven't seen him do it before, I don't want to back him to just like carry on doing this. Like if Aguero started with five goals in three games, you'd be like, yeah, I mean, he's going to score another five goals in the next three games. But with Calvert-Lewin, you're trained to think he's going to go three games without a goal at some point because you don't have the evidence to fall back on. And so with Everton, it really is that it's a new mesh. It started way quicker than I thought it would. Um, and it needs to prove that it has that like that top four level quality and that consistency because that is a that is a whole different level as well, isn't it? It's, it's about being able to maintain that consistency over the course of the season. And I guess the other point is that you know even with all these additions and how good they look right now, you stack them up side by side against you know Chelsea, Liverpool, City, maybe even United, and you say player for player, are they better? And you know over the course of eleven players, you'd say no. So it's a quality issue, but it's also a I, I need to see it before I say it. Do you get what I mean? Yeah, I absolutely do. So then we're not sure about Everton's top four prospects. Sam, are you willing to go on record and say that you think Liverpool will be in the top four? Uh, I believe so, yes. You do? All right. <laughs> All right. I think, I think I agree with you. I think they've also uh, been pretty smart in the window. They bring in Thiago. They bring in Diogo Jota and uh, Simikas as well. Thiago looked good, though the positive corona test is maybe not ideal. Jota's already scoring. Do you see any areas of vulnerability with Liverpool or do you think it is going to be sort of them at the top of the table for most of the season with maybe some challengers in there? But barring them shooting themselves in the foot, do you see any problems for Liverpool? Well, I don't think they have any any squad depth issues apart from arguably centre back because they sold Dejan Lovren, which is the right choice, but they haven't replaced him. Although Fabinho can clearly step back and play there. And his performance against uh, specifically Timo Werner, but Chelsea in general uh, in the second game was masterful. Like how he handled Werner was 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 just like that's a 45 minute tape that you show centre backs like this is how you deal with a very, very quick wing. Like what he did was was brilliant. It was superb. So maybe that's not even a worry because you've got Thiago, you get that extra body in midfield. You've got Thiago and Henderson that can play the deepest, deepest lying role, which means Fabinho can be the fourth centre back swing if you need it to. I'd say they're probably done. I'd say they don't need any more players. I'd say there are no weaknesses. I mean, for the last couple of years, we've been saying, well, they haven't got a backup left back and they probably need to add another body into the attacking rotation. They've done exactly that, haven't they? 
uh, Jota and Simicas. Simicas looks remarkably like Robertson, but Greek. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> you know, Jota is, is a good fit for them stylistically. He's a really good fit um, as a kind of inside forward, somewhat two-footed, quite lively, will press, will work. I actually do have a few complaints about the fee there. Um, I think that's too much money for Jota. And some people have said to me, well, Sam, look, they're paying like 10% of his fee up front. And, you know, with, with being cash straps, like that's a win. I was like that while that is true and that is very good maneuverability, you still actually have to pay 41 million pounds for Jota. And what I would worry with him is not about the quality. It's about like whether or not you can actually give him enough opportunities to make it worth it. Mm-hmm. So like as a 41 million pound player, he will be judged by his price tag. Are you going to be able to get Jota enough time on the pitch to really prove that that was worth it? And that's why I thought they signed Minamino for, for peanuts because they couldn't really justify those minutes. So they couldn't justify the price, but they've done it differently this year. So we'll see. Actually, with that in mind, why do you think they did go for Jota then? If they have Minamino, if it feels like they've got some depth there, is it just looking at the squad and thinking we could use a more established Premier League player? Is there something else that Jota is bringing in that maybe they didn't have otherwise? Or is it just sort of a mystery until we know for sure? I think I personally think what's happened is they figured out or maybe they knew all along, but yeah, either way, it's come to light that I think Minamino is actually Firmino's backup. Mm-hmm. So I think we probably looked at this as he's one of the wide forwards and we're starting to realize that actually he's probably not go that got those explosive uh, physical traits. Uh, but what he does have is, is, is extreme intelligence and excellent link up play right. and is very comfortable centrally in dropping in and linking. So I wonder if they've actually gone, ah, Minamino is, is Firmino. Um, and so we actually need somebody to, to step in for someone like Sadio Mane. Uh, and that's what, and that's why they've ended up in this position. I, I'm not sure, but I, yeah. that's pro- that's where I see it. And then from a broader Liverpool perspective, uh, when it comes to Jurgen Klopp and his tactical approach, do you see him evolving or adjusting what he does? Or basically, do you think Liverpool will continue to be high octane, press, go at you, try to win the ball back at the field, try to score as many goals as possible. Do you think they will basically do that until a team figures out a way to stop them? Or do you think you'll see Jurgen Klopp sort of adjusting, changing things up as he goes to keep that team sort of fresh and competitive? I think he's already started to make that adaption uh, in signing Thiago because Thiago is an amazing player. And like I have absolutely no complaints over, over the idea of signing someone like Thiago. He's wonderful. He's one of my favorite players in the world. And the fact that he's now in England and, and you know, if I ever get to travel to a stadium again and I get to go and watch him live, I will do it probably most weeks. I'll dedicate my entire life to traveling around the country and watching Thiago pass the football. I'm happy to do it. Um, but Thiago is, is absolutely nothing like any of their other midfielders. He's is completely wrong stylistically for how Liverpool have been operating in the central midfield three for the last two years. So they used three centre mids to basically just counter press, to play high up, but not create, to, to create turnovers and pass the ball to the, to the fullbacks. They just give it to Trent, give it to Robertson, create the space for them to run into or push it higher up. And then they sit and camp in the opposition half just outside the penalty box. And then they just win the ball back again. Wijnaldum, Henderson, these guys, and just pass it sideways or pass it forwards. They're just recycling machines. And you see that in you know, statistics coming out. You know, Liverpool's chance creation comes like 40% of them come from the fullbacks. It's absurdly high. And what Klopp there is doing is He's diversifying his approach, his tactical approach, by adding Thiago to the midfield. Because now you can rely on some more central creativity. The burden on Robertson and Trent has been lifted ever so slightly. You've got Jota to come in and help 
continue to press very, very hard because he will do that. So by by deepening that area of the squad, they can go full octane, as you say, high octane and uh, go full speed for 90 minutes again and again and again because they've got the players to do it. But they've also tweaked the way they're going to create in these games. And Thiago is a, is a, is a step in that direction. I think Klopp is realizing he needs to, he needs more from his central midfield in order to keep on top of, a, of adaptations from other teams. Cause you're right that people will figure them out, but the smart managers stay one step ahead and never let people figure you out. Sam, I, I think you are probably more familiar with, uh, with betting on games than I am or, or predicting outcomes. How can I wager that uh, Tiago will become a world-class manager? How do I make that happen? Because I'm fully convinced that is going to happen, unless you want to try to talk me off that ledge right now. Uh, world-class manager, I mean, careful, careful. Like, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't necessarily correlate, you know. Um, <laughs> Tiago Motta... <laughs> <laughs> Tried to, do, do you remember? Do you remember that? Do you remember Thiago? I mean, it went, like, it, went, it went really well. Is what I remember. Am I? Am like I? A, have I got that wrong? It's like a two-six-two formation or something <laughs> like that. It didn't really work out too well. I mean, I don't know what the link is here. I was, I was always convinced that that smart midfielders, and particularly holding midfielders, would make really good managers yeah. because they had a different appreciation for the game, and. Um, I remember looking into, because when Claude Makaleli took a job in, in Liga as manager, I was like, this is going to be amazing. He's going to be so good. And he got fired after like eight games. So um, any any ideas I thought were present about correlation, I think were not there. So I don't think you should be betting anything on that dude. Fine. Uh, I still will, though, because I love him. Uh, I, w- I will bet on Jose Mourinho to be a manager. Uh, I think I could probably win that one pretty straightforward. Spurs uh, beat Chelsea yesterday on penalties in the League Cup, so that's positive. Less positive, I guess, for them is that that was uh, their millionth game, I think, in September, or really just their <laughs> six, but still, that's six and 17. That's a decent amount. I know you had concerns about their depth heading into this season. Has that changed at all with the signings that they've brought in? They've definitely made the moves that they've needed to. Um, so my concerns, yeah, on, on on the schedule, I would say they've been alleviated because I don't think that it's not just September. It's like they, they, the fact that they've won their cup game is, <laughs> means they've got to play another one. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, is that how it works? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you no, carry on. I, I had no you, idea. It's a knockout competition. Oh. So if you win, you, you carry on. Um, but they've got, yeah, they've got more games to play. Um, you know, they were running around on the pitch on, um, on Tuesday night after they'd, they'd beaten Chelsea and penalty celebrating. And there's me going, stop running around. You've got a game in two days. Yeah. Uh, you're going to pull a hamstring. <laughs> um, they, have, they have had quite the schedule and they've done, they've done very well to, to get through to this point. Uh, I mean, the game against Leighton Orient was cancelled, which also helps. Um, so that, that's good. But um, so far, they've managed to, to negotiate these ridiculous flights out to all sorts of different places in Europe and back very, very well. And their, their next game, obviously, in the Europa League is Maccabee Hay for at home. So they don't have to go to Israel, which is always good, given you've already travelled to like is it Bulgaria, I think, and somewhere else. Like it's, it's been yeah. really, it's been really tough for them. They've done remarkably well. And of course, adding players like, like Bale and like Regulon, that, that helps hugely. My, my concern really early in the season was that they wouldn't actually make those, those caliber signings and they wouldn't be able to stretch their squad out, but they've, they've handled it really well, but it doesn't stop here. Like it's not just like, Oh, if we get over the hump in September, we'll be good. October and November, they will play loads of games. They are the most stretched team in the Premier League by far. And I'm still worried about it because 
even if they negotiate all of those three months, sorry to just put a massive downer on it, Spurs fans, but like even if they negotiate all three of those months and they get through the really hard period and they, they win or draw every game and they're on course, at what point later in the season does this just hit them? You know, March, April, I don't know when it is, but at some point there's got to be some kind of physical come down and a fatigue, of, a wall of fatigue hits. So even if they get through the first bit, you never know when that's going to bite you on the other end. Uh, that is a very doom and gloomy way of saying Tottenham have done really well and they've made some good signings. But that, that's my worry, right? <laughs> well, let's talk about one of those signings for a minute because similar to me being convinced that Thiago is going to be a world-class manager, I am convinced that Gareth Bale is going to be very successful at Spurs this season. I think he'll have a big impact. Do you share that optimism or do you have concerns there as well? I mean, I'm, yeah, it's been a long time since I've seen Gareth Bale play to the peak of his powers. And um, it makes it really hard to kind of project, doesn't it? I mean, we're always kind of going out on the limb one way or the other. Um, you know, he's an amazing footballer, like an amazing footballer. And the fact that he feels loved and appreciated, he feels like he's at home, will do him wonders. And um, if he can stay fit, he will be incredible because he's an incredible footballer. It's just about whether or not those um, those hamstrings and those thighs and those calves are okay because he spent more time off the pitch than on it over the last couple of years, really. And it kind of, do you know when he, you know when that picture came out when he was a uh, Wales duty just before the season? That picture of him doing his hair yeah. or like swishing his hair, the amount of grey in his hair did that did that knock you back a bit? Oh, I didn't even notice that. I might have to go back and look. There's a big chunk of grey in the side of his hair. Now I'm 30, right? There are a couple of grey wisps in the side of my head, so let's not let's not make it out to be anything it's not. It's totally normal, but it's just a bit of a shock. When you see, like, when you think of Gareth Bale, like, true, like, elite athlete, one of the best in the world at one stage, former transfer record and, you know, Champions League winner, serial Champions League winner, and then you, you don't see him for a while and he comes back and you've got, and there's, there's visible evidence of him aging and you're like, whoa, oh my God, you know, this is different. You know, this is Gareth Bale and he's in his 30s and you just don't know what to expect. I gotta say, I think I was focused mostly on the amount of red that he had in his hair. Looking at this photo again, you're right. That is a that is a fairly decent amount of gray hair. Again, no judgment. If you are losing your hair, we have Hams as a sponsor. You can talk to them. Uh, but yeah, that man, that's a good shout. I still have the faith in him because of the way it's gone for Real Madrid and sort of maybe wanting to prove them uh, terribly wrong, and at the same time having the connection to Spurs. I think. He maybe it does maybe motivate him to perform pretty well, and maybe he will deputize for Kane if and when that has to happen. If it does, I'm hoping that we get to at least see some of it in season two of Tottenham All or Nothing. I don't know if that's happening, uh, but I did want to ask you about that because I'm assuming you've watched. Did you have? Well, have you watched? And do you have any favorite moments thus far for whatever reason? I've seen most of it. Um, I haven't seen all of it yet. I think I'm about two or three episodes shy of the end. I need to watch it in like broken up periods because it gets very samey uh, and a bit boring, actually, if, if I watch it in like a streak. But if I come back to it every now and then, I find real, real entertainment in it. Um, I think that Jose Mourinho calling out Serge Aurier ruthlessly was... I did think that was really funny, but I did. It did also make me wonder if, you know, over the years we've been talking about how, you know, or lots of people say that Mourinho is, is antiquated in his in his methods. Mm -hmm. And um, what you what you did in 2004 doesn't work in 2020. I've I just wonder if that's a, a prime example. Like no one likes being called out and told that they're rubbish or they're doing something wrong, and especially in front of other people and like 30, 30 other people. Like, no one likes that. 
And, um, you know, he's, he's basically telling Serge Aurier in front of everybody that he doesn't trust him and he's a massive liability. Now, all of this is true. It's fair enough. I just wonder if that was maybe one for the uh, individual one-on-one meeting. Um, you know, when Serge Aurier goes in for his quarterly upward review with Jose, uh, maybe mention it then, not yeah. like in front of everybody, like in a quite humiliating way, uh, especially in a second language as well. It's a bit, it's a bit, I thought that was a bit odd. But I, I did, I did, I did enjoy it because Aurier just was like, he was looking around like, what? Yeah. Like, what? Like, it's like, what a drive by. And it's, it's entertaining. One more quick interruption from me to let you know that this episode of the Total Soccer Show is brought to you by HelloFresh. HelloFresh offers convenient delivery right to your doorstep for easy home cooking with the family. Uh, if you, like me, have the desire to go to the grocery store, I like going to the grocery store, but then it's the process of getting there that can be a little bit uh, difficult. And especially in COVID times, it can be a little bit stressful on top. If you don't want to go to the grocery store, but you still want to eat delicious home-cooked meals, then you can do so via HelloFresh. The recipes are easy to follow, quick to make, with simple steps and pictures to guide you along the way. I really like the pictures. I really like the checklist so you know the progress you've made. You don't have to keep consulting it over and over again. But then the other key thing is that there are many different delicious options every single week, so you can try lots of different stuff. You're not just cooking the same five things that you know how to cook because that's what you know how to cook. There's something for everyone, including low-calorie, vegetarian, and kid-friendly recipes. And these are, again, fresh, high-quality, pre-portioned ingredients that allow you to make delicious and nutritious meals very, very easily with very little mess. Over 90% of ingredients are sourced directly from growers to ensure the freshest recipes are delivered to your door. And again, that's really nice to just open the door and have food there. No going to the grocery store, no finding your keys, no finding your mask, no remembering the list and then forgetting the list and then trying to remember it and then kicking yourself on the way home when you remember the two things that you were supposed to get that necessitated the trip to the grocery store in the first place. None of that because it's just coming right to you. So to see what they have on offer, you can go to HelloFresh.com. And to get our special code, you can go to HelloFresh.com slash ADTSS and use the code ADTSS to get a total of $80 off your first month with free shipping on your first box. Additional restrictions apply. Please visit HelloFresh.com for more details. And one more time, go to HelloFresh.com slash ADTSS. Use code ADTSS to get a total of $80 off your first month, including free shipping. Thank you very much to HelloFresh for sponsoring this episode. Now back one more time to Sam. With Aurier specifically, I actually wanted to ask about Aurier and Mourinho in relation to this documentary because he seems to call him out. Aurier seems to not necessarily like Jose Mourinho. And then there's also Jose is like constantly pinching his cheek and putting his arm around him and like rubbing his face. And it seems that Jose is like trying to be friendly with him and likes him and relies on him, but then simultaneously doesn't like him, doesn't trust him and doesn't rely on him. What do you make of Serge Aurier at Spurs? And like, do you think Matt Doherty coming in is essentially them saying, like, yeah, you were here for a while, but we don't really need you anymore. We want this guy to play that spot. Well, I mean, I think it's the same as Deli Ali, isn't it? Where he's, he's like, you know, grabbing his cheek, nudging him, laughing with him, putting his arm around him, but also being like, you're a liability and I don't trust you and I don't <laughs> want to play you. So I think there are definitely two sides to Jose there. Um, yeah. And yeah, Serge Aurier is, is, he is a liability. Like he has given away like way too many penalties or dangerous fouls in dangerous areas at critical moments in games for anybody to really trust him. And it's no surprise to me that they bought a new right back. I think Doherty for 15 million is a, is a, is a really good deal. I think it's a steal, to be honest with you. I don't really understand. Well, I think I do understand how Wolves let that happen is because they didn't say it was going to happen. George Mendes did. But um, it, that, that, is, that is a signing that had to be made because Aurier 
had no obvious competition, particularly when Carl Walker-Peters left on loan and then permanently. And you can't let a player get away with that stuff. And you can't trust a player that does that. I mean, Aurier used to play all the Champions League games and give away a penalty in most of them. It used to perplex me, truly perplex me. Um, so you have to bring in somebody else to, to either kick him up the arse or just replace him with, basically. Um, but the, the other thing, actually, just talking about yeah, putting your arm around Delhi, that the bit I have actually liked the most, and it's, I think it's the only bit that I've tweeted on about the whole entire series, is because it's very relatable to me, is when Jose stands there and he's like, everyone says my name wrong. Everyone mispronounces my name. Everyone calls me Jose, but it's Jose. Jose, I am not Argentinian. He says that mm-hmm. because he's talking to somebody. I can't remember who it is, but they all, he asked them how to say his name. Um, and he's checking because obviously when your name is mispronounced consistently, which mine is, you know, it's Thai, but people say Thai, Tiger, yeah. Tiger, Tiggy, all sorts of crap. First year, uh, first day at the new school year was a hell of a ride. Um, whereas all the teachers tried to figure it out. But yeah, as someone who's sensitive to that, I was like, oh, Jose is like really quite fed up of people calling him Jose. And that happens constantly in this country. Like that still, if you go on TalkSport or listen to Sky Sports News, Jose, not Jose, pretty much from everybody. Everyone's getting it wrong. That was my favorite bit because I was like, same. (laughs) I mean, as a Taylor Tyler uh, person, I I can I feel your pain. I understand the mispronunciation. Is that a ubiquitous like is that a deliberately ubiquitous thing? Like when I still hear people say David de Gea, it feels like they are just sort of deciding I am just pronouncing everything as though it were English. I am not going to make an attempt with anything. And therefore, I I don't have to sort of like learn how to say everybody's name properly by never saying anybody's name right. Like, is that the approach with pundits or is it just sort of like whatever? I'm just saying saying however it makes sense to me because I don't feel like looking into the actual pronunciation i mean look i mean everybody's going to be different but my take on it is um no speak for all of england please you represent everybody now yeah okay Mm -hmm. fine so speaking on behalf of the entire country thank you i would i would say that um we as a nation are really really poor at opening our eyes to other languages so our our like multi-language awareness is rock bottom in the in the world i'm sure of it like at least in america you have like a much more and historically much more like diverse mix and there's going to be loads of people that take Spanish early and learn it properly and then therefore learn and understand how to pronounce different names. In England, we don't do that. We get, you know, we get introduced to French when we're like, I don't know, 11. We do it for one year. No one pays attention. Then you get the option of doing a bit of German if you want to. Everyone says no, because that sucks as well. And then that's it. We're done. We can all speak one language and we hate every other language. And that is why no one can pronounce anybody's name properly. And then what happens is once you've, when you read a word and you're, you're, you're being um, ignorant, as English people are, when you read a word, you read David De Gea, like you look at it and you're like, David De Gea, David De Gea. OK, that's it. That's how we're going to say that name. And then you just stick to it, don't you? Like that's that's how in your mind it's that. And then you just carry on. And to be honest, I try really hard with names, but I still get some wrong. Like, obviously, and I know I'm doing it wrong. Like I call I call. You know, I say Griezmann, mm-hmm. and we know it's not Griezmann, it's Griezmann. And I say Haaland, and I know it's Haaland. But these are just like little ones that just won't leave my mind. And I'm trying really hard for the most part, but there's just everyone everyone gets something wrong. But in England, anyway, we're just ignorant, and then we don't want to change. Pronounce um, that pronounce that tall Norwegian's name again, because I am definitely getting that one wrong. It's Erling Haaland. Interesting. Didn't know that. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it's Haaland. Are you sure? It's, no, it's, I think it's Holland, man. Like it's the the a, the a with the circle over it is not an R. 
I will take your word for that one because you seem to have thought about this. Uh, I will instead be focusing on, uh, as my introduction suggesting or suggested, I do like to troll a little bit, and I look forward to the next time we are in Germany together, and I just kind of casually bring up, hey, Sam, you said that the German language sucked, right? Uh, and I look forward to you defending yourself on that one. No, that was me speaking uh, sure, sure, sure. As, 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 as England. Uh-huh. Ah, thank you. With your, Representing your, the nation. Your, your Union Jack suit on, I'm assuming? I mean, dude, the German sucks. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I will then stick to the Premier League then and not Germany. Um, some other surprising things that have happened this season so far would be Newcastle doing smart business. I'm confused by that. I would also say I'm very surprised by the way Sheffield United and Southampton have started. Uh, which of those three things do you think is most surprising? The way Southampton and Sheffield have started or Newcastle doing solid business? <laughs> yeah, Christ. Um, what is more surprising? That's a tough one. Um, I think, in retrospect, I would have said initially. I would have said um, I would have said Southampton. But in retrospect, Hassan Hussle here was actually quite um, quite. I want to say naive, but stu- stubborn. Um, he tried to play his like pretty standard, you know, four four two pressing structure, high pressing, high line, um, with a with a half fit team that just weren't ready and. Ultimately, in retrospect, probably an adjustment needed to be made there um, because he then came out and was like, we're not prepared, we're not sharp, we're not ready. And that's because, you know, the preseason was a farce for everybody. Uh, Really, what should have happened was a toning down to a point. uh, But I don't think that happened. And that's how they ended up losing to Palace. uh, And they could have lost by like they could have equalized, but they also could have lost by more in the end. Like there was some pretty close calls in some massive open spaces. Those open spaces were what Son Kun Min dived, uh, you know, dove into and scored. Was it four? I think it was four. I mean, I blacked out halfway through it. Like I just, I was not happy. Um, and um, yeah, so that that in retrospect is not surprising. But I was convinced that Southampton would start on the on, on the front foot and and charge yeah. into the top half and maybe even really go for Europe Europa League. They can still do that. They've definitely found their feet a little bit, but it's a slower start. I guess the actual surprise is Newcastle doing good things. Um, Although I'll, I'll obviously enter a, a caveat here, and that Newcastle have, you know, they've paid, they, they've bought, they've bought Wilson, they bought Fraser on a free transfer, but not really because no free transfer is free. And Jamal Lewis, am I missing anyone? It's those three, isn't it? Basically, yeah. oh, and Jeff Hendrick and Jeff Hendrick. I mean, these guys are going to be on big wages. Like, 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 make no mistake about it. These are good deals. No, fine. Um, but the free transfers, they don't come free. And the, the wages are high as a result. And you know Callum Wilson's going to be on a big whack. The five-year deal, I would be surprised if it's less than 100 grand a week. So they've done some good stuff. And uh, in a very Steve Bruce vein, they've bought someone from Northern Ireland, someone from the Republic of Ireland, someone from Scotland, and someone from England. Because Steve Bruce's scouting network does not extend beyond this island. But... <laughs> They're solid players. They're solid players. They are they are Premier League proven for the most part. Um, they'll be on big wages, but these are these are good buys. So, so that's St- probably the most surprising for me. Steve Bruce and his coaching staff really embraced the idea of nah, French is boring and German sucks. We're just going to stick to English, basically. <laughs> yeah, a bit. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, I just need to find. I just need to find a Welshman on loan. They'll be sorted. I mean, they had an opportunity, but uh, Tottenham got him first. Uh, I, <laughs> I, I thought you were going to say, say Ampadu. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you never know. That could go that way too. Uh, where has Ampadu ended up? Uh, Sheffield United. Uh, of course, yes. And that slow start is a little bit unlucky because you know Villa they're in that game, but then they get reduced to ten. Uh, Leeds they're well in that game, and that was on a knife edge, and they lose that one. 
uh, bit of a hangover maybe from the end of last season heading into this one. I think technically they've lost six in a row, although that would have to go back into last season. So that's not really fair. But there's a lot of doom and gloom around that fan base right now. I've got a friend who's a Sheffield United fan and he's like, mate, Blade's Twitter is like committing suicide tonight. What the hell is happening? And I took a look and there's a lot of doom and gloom. The problem is they don't score enough goals. I mean, that's a really bloody obvious thing for me to say, but you know, they need to, they need to figure that part of the pitch out. They, they're geared to win one nil. They currently can't score that one goal. They need to win one nil. And they're unfortunately conceding a few because John Egan's been sent off. Jack O'Connell's having a knee operation. The fabric of that very consistent defensive line is changing. The one thing I would say that I love about Sheffield United right now is Sander Berg, who is awesome. What what do you like the most about him? I don't disagree, but uh, he's one who like, it's a name that you know, you know, they spent money on him. I've seen him play a few times. Uh, is a little bit like maybe up in was for you where I'll see him and be like, yeah, that was fine. But I don't see that next level performance. What do you see from him that makes you very excited? I mean, personally, I love this kind of player uh, because he's huge. He's a big rumbler. I love rumblers. Um, we're talking Danny DaCosta, right wing back for Frankfurt. We're talking Lucas Klosterman, rumblers. You know, people that they don't run. Yeah. Okay. They don't sprint and they don't walk. They rumble. Okay. They're big, heavy set dudes that for some reason can move way quicker than they should be able to physically. They've got these close control. They've got the sprint speed. They've got this ball carrying ability that they really shouldn't have because they look like they should be massive lumps. So huge soft spot for someone like Sander Berger. But he's really, he's really good. As a number six, he can sit at the deepest in midfield and he can spread, spread the ball around. He can break up play. And as a number eight, he can charge with the ball and get Sheffield United up the pitch. And that's what we're seeing at the moment when they're breaking out of their defensive set. They give the ball to Berg and he just like, he just kind of, ah, he rumbles forward like he just goes from box to box and he's like impossible to dispossess. Obviously, they're not the same player, but remember when Yaya Toro just used to like just shrug people off him? Yes. When he was in full flow, he just used to shrug them. These are professional, proper athletes that spend all week preparing physically for this battle and they get swatted away like flies. That is what Sanderberg does when he runs forward. And when he enters the box with the ball, is actually quite dangerous. He scored a really good goal at the end of uh, end of last season against Tottenham, where he flashed it across the keeper. He nearly did the same to Aston Villa on the first week, uh, or the second week, actually, for Sheffield United. And um, yeah, I think he's a really threatening player there as well. So can play six or eight, go box to box or sit. They spent a lot of money on him, like for Sheffield United, 22 million, but seriously, next year or the year after, this is a, this is a 50, 60 million pound midfielder for a top six team. 50, 60 million pound rumbler. And I'm now obsessed with this idea of rumbler. I have five players for you, Sam, that I've just written down. I want to know if you think that they qualify as rumblers because they're names that come to my head, but I think probably most of them do not. I want to start with Marcelo, who is very fast, can do the defensive job. And yet I do think a little bit rumbly. I would not say that he's a rumbler. Um, I think you have to be at least six foot to qualify as a rumbler. Um, This is is a new... I mean, I'm categorizing this on the fly a little I bit. I mean, I like it. It's, it's never been scientifically analyzed. Unlike, uh, are you familiar with Barrel Club? Have I told you about Barrel Club before? No. So this is, the, this is what uh, my co-host on, on Football Ranks, Jack Collins, is, we have Barrel Club. And these are people that are shaped like barrels. <laughs> so they're, they're, they're very short and squat. Jordan Shakiri, the captain? What, what, Shakiri is absolutely in the barrel 11. Yeah. Um, as is Luke Shaw, as is Ryan yeah. Fraser, as is James Milner. Um, and the captain is actually Lee Tomlin, okay. uh, who, who a lot of listeners won't be familiar with, but he's basically a fat playmaker. Um, 
<laughs> and Andy Reid, going back a little bit further, uh, championship winger at, at Nottingham Forest was uh, was also in Barrel Club. So that that's Barrel Club, and then we've got Rumblers Club, which is six foot uh, six foot plus, thick set dude. Uh, and can rumble you know he, he can he can travel with the ball and he does so effectively but in a way that you're like a man of your size should not be able to do so weston mckinney is he a rumbler oh he's you know oh that's a tough one because he's kind of in the mid-range between barrel and and, <laughs> and rumble. rumble because he's not that tall um but he does rumble Leave that with me. All right, I'll leave that with you. What about, uh, how about like Paul Pogba, who is obviously very tall, no, but then no, he's, he's, too gra- he's too graceful. He's too, he's too graceful. graceful. All right. So you can't, you can't do this when he's set with any semblance of grace. Okay. Harry Kane? Huh. I haven't considered any strikers. You don't, think of him, you don't think of him as being like fleet of foot necessarily. I also don't think of him as being particularly graceful. Obviously, he's elegant. Yeah. He has elegant finishes. So maybe that removes him from the, the Rumbler conversation. Maybe, maybe, yeah. I'd never considered a striker in this area because it's more of a dribbling thing. But I think when he dribbles, he does rumble. And then, and then the other one who is also a striker who I would put in that same category would be Luis Suarez. Now, he's too short. Oh right, of course. Then we have the six foot category. All right, so I feel like I have a better <laughs> idea of Rumbler, uh, and I really, really love this terminology and the Barrel Eleven as well. That one also terrific. Thank you for that, Sam. <laughs> um, we do talk some rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned um, you mentioned well while, while we're talking rubbish, uh, you mentioned Leeds earlier. I believe you proclaimed yourself the captain of the Bielsa hype train. W- what? Is it that makes you love Bielsa Ball so much? Why should people make sure to watch Leeds when they're on the television? I mean, so, you know, Bielsa's team are, are high octane, high press. And I think they're probably the fittest, probably the fittest team in England outside of Liverpool, uh, to be honest, with, with regard to how long that they can keep, up, keep that pressure up and the intensity with which they play, which naturally creates really quick sequences. It creates attacking moments. And they also do have... You know, to complement their, their, their quite slick playing style, they do have a number of players who are willing to just let it go and see what happens. Um, and they do tend to score quite a lot of like semi-spectacular goals from distance because they also have that that license to just 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 have a pop when they need to. And they get goals from all over the place. Like you see Stuart Dallas popping up in the box from left back, and you see like Mateus Click has already got a couple of goals. You'll see it. You'll see a lot more from him. And Elder Costa scored scored a really nice one. Like they are. They are sort of footballing joy, I would say, um, when, when on the ball. nice. Uh, the, the flow is great. And then off the ball, they are so energetic and they harass you so much that they're thrilling to watch. And um, With Bielsa in particular, he's become a bit of a, a cult figure and I'm fascinated by him as a person as well because the stories you hear about him are just ridiculous. I mean, just put if you're not familiar, just put Bielsa into Google, Bielsa stories, and there's all sorts of ridiculous stuff um, of that he's like purported to have done. Uh, I actually interviewed Stuart Dallas a couple of weeks ago and asked like, what's the weirdest thing that you've seen him do? And he he's, he's, he was honest and said like, I, I I don't really. He said Stuart Dallas looks these up on Google and reads these stories, and we're talking like paces the width and length of the opposition pitch every single time because he doesn't trust the measurements given. Uh, There was a report that when he was manager of Athletic Club Bilbao, he drenched vertical strips of the pitch when Barcelona came to play, but not all of them. So the the water on the pitch was uneven and tiki-taka did not work as a result. Um, There's weird stories of his time in Argentina and, and his talent assessment and, you know, the Spygate thing, like that's that's yeah. been going on for years, mate. Like he's been deploying like his daughter's husband 
became a spy for him back in Argentina and did like six years worth of spying from trees. Like this is normal for him. Um, he has not, become not this, one this... thing that you just said is normal. <laughs> no, of course. But when I so when I asked her when I asked Dallas about this, he he's, he didn't really have anything to say to this. He was like, I haven't. He's either mellowed or um or he does or he just keeps it private from the players. Uh, he said the weirdest thing he's seen him do is that he walks to he walks to, to work to training from from where he lives. Um, rain, sleet snow shine no matter what the weather is he walks to work and it's about three miles um and bielsa's like 65 yeah. or 68 or he's like an old man and uh, it's cold in leeds guys um shouldn't really be doing that but he does so that, that's a bit of a disappointment really on that front that dallas couldn't be like oh yeah it's all true he's crazy um but that adds to the cult element because you don't know if it happened or not and i'm fascinated by it all right, all right. I, I'm I'm even more in on Marcelo Bielsa. Final Premier League question for you. Uh, I wanted to ask about Arsenal for a moment because uh, they. I saw a, a decent amount of positive comments about the game yesterday. They lost to Liverpool. I also saw a decent number of negative comments. A lot of them centering on Mikel Arteta. Uh, is he that different? Is he changing things the way he needs to? What do you make of Mikel Arteta at Arsenal and what they've done so far this season? Yeah, I'm pretty much all in on. Arsenal and Arteta, mm-hmm. to be honest with you. Um, I think I think uh, we, we have a tendency to try and pull too many strands from one game at times, particularly yep. when, when two teams like Arsenal and Liverpool meet. Um, I mean, we do like to... hour and a half long episodes that review those games. So yeah, I'd agree that we probably pull too much at one game. Yeah, that was a veiled dig at you. Um, <laughs> as, uh, I mean, look, people, people look, we probably... can't all come up with top five ranks about best Serie A player in the 90s who was bald, all right? Yeah, I know. That's my area. Um, <laughs> yeah, basically, sometimes we are a bit guilty of that, um, particularly this early in the season. Um, I think Arteta after the game was just like, look, they're just, they're just really good. Um, they are where we want to be in three years and we have to accept that and realize that and we have to recognize that. And it's like, fair enough. Like, that's completely true. Um, this game is too, like, Arsenal can't win that game. They're just like, well, no one can win that game. Like, it's just really difficult to, 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 to be anything other than completely and utterly outclassed by Liverpool when you play them. And you've got to realize that. And, and if you're, if you're drawing too many conclusions about whether or not Arteta and Arsenal are a good fit for each other based on, you know, a defeat to Liverpool, I'm just a bit like, well, you know, come on, come on. Like, you know, like we, we need, we need a bit more in the tank here. And what have we seen from Arteta so far? It's, it's been good, hasn't it? I mean, I think the idea of that him reinstalling a winning culture is a bit wider than the mark because they did actually, even when they were rubbish under Wenger, they used to win the FA Cup all the time. Um, but what he has put in place is a pretty versatile and flexible tactical plan. And I know he took some pelters for trying to play through the Liverpool press uh, on Monday, but he did that against City and won an FA Cup semi-final 2-0. Mm-hmm. So at the very worst, he's just staying true to a method that he knows works against a high press of a very high quality team. And yeah, it plays with fire a bit. If you can't play through the press, you expose yourself. I don't know why he dropped Gabriel. That was a bit weird. Um, but ultimately, I think they're on the right track. Uh, I don't really have a bad word to say about Arteta. And a, a 3-1 loss to a Liverpool team that everybody agrees was sensational on the night is not a reason to criticise him. All right. So po- positivity for both Liverpool and Arsenal there. Sam, if your opinions do change, I'm sure you will uh, verbalise that on your show. How can people hear more from you or find that programme? Yeah, we are a Football Ranks podcast Um so come and take a look at us, search it in Spotify, iTunes, whatever it is. It's me, uh, 
Then he said me, myself, and Jack there, which would be two of me and one of Jack, because Dean's fine. involved too. It's uh, it's me, Jack, and Dean talking about transfers, talking about tactics, talking about everything, and ranking everything under the sun. This week we did five deals to look out for heading into the final window with our insider Dean Jones, and I provided a ranking of which football tag teams would win a wrestling Royal Rumble. So you can <laughs> see the split of... <laughs> split responsibilities there some serious <laughs> some not quite so serious uh, yeah. but come and join us if you would like to I, I, I would I would strongly encourage people to do so because it, it, it is usually very like very fun you do cover the wide range of topics as you mentioned but then there's also Sam's as I said before like encyclopedic knowledge I do want to let you go because you've been very generous with your time but my final question that I, I did have for you is sort of how do you pay attention to all of these players I know you watch a ton of football you watch a lot of games over the weekend but like are you tracking individual players do you have like a database where you're like here's the last thing i saw to keep them in mind or are you really just sort of off the dome remembering all of these players and what they do and what you like and what you don't like i did once try to keep a little diary of the games that i i was watching but i just like got lazy and just didn't really update it so um like when when, when i'm when i'm when i'm talking about specific players for certain fits like it's not just off the dome like i have i have a huge a huge index i have like a a spreadsheet that I've designed or got my, my, my friend who's an accountant who's excellent with Excel has designed me like a, we've called it the tie decks. Um, <laughs> and it's like, it's, it's like a poker decks and it has 4,000 players in it. I think, uh, I'm just going to scroll to the bottom. 3,800 players in it. And it's got, um, which position they uh, name, position, uh, positions, uh, market value uh, ripped from transfer marked, when their contract ends, what foot they are, what height they are, and then a comment section on the right. And pretty much every time I see a player for the first time, I'll put some stuff down in the comment section, watch them a few more times, maybe update it. And then if I come across another player that I hadn't seen for a while and something's changed, I'll go back and have a look. So I'm just constantly updating my own ridiculous database. Uh, and look, not all, not all 4,000 players have have comments next to them i haven't really got that far yet like that's this is a uh, i'm not that sad uh but that is how i keep track of my thoughts and so when i'm like oh city need a center back what can i do i just use the filters to narrow it down left foot right foot center back market value i've got a list of six and that'll do well not a list of six because city to be fair can only be improved by about three players but um yeah that's that's the method so it's um it's all it's all documented somehow is it all kept under lock and key because i'm gonna try to hack into that otherwise um yeah i mean it's 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 private it's in my will um it's been <laughs> i've written it into i genuinely my will. don't know if you're joking by the way it's to be left to my cats if i die <laughs> and from they are the executives of my will not my fiance and they will decide what to do with it all right i mean i, think and I, would, I would say if you want access to it after my death then bribe them with cat food I, I shall do my best. I, I, I will start shipping it today over there just so I can get access to that. Uh, I look forward to that. I look forward to my strong relationship with your cats. I look forward to future conversation uh, conversations with you, Sam Ty. But for now, thank you again for taking all the time to talk about lots of different things. Oh, no problem, buddy. Anytime. Anytime.